Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I'm both an Israeli and an American. Born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the first Lebanon war in the 1980s and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. In this episode, I'd like to speak about three different topics. One of them is the daring rescue mission in which Israeli special forces rescued two Israeli hostages. The second topic I'd like to speak about is The Hague, once again, the court in The Hague, as well as other organizations around the world, attempting to limit Israel's ability to defend itself. And a third topic has to do with an ultimate plan set by the Biden administration, together with some Arab member states, in order to try to create a final solution, if I can use those words, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So let's start off with a rescue mission. Two hostages, Fernando Simon Merman, 60 years old, and Louis Hall, seven years old, were rescued in a daring operation in the heart of the densely populated city of Rafiach. The two men were kidnapped for kibbutz Niritzchak on October 7th, along with three other family members who had already returned to Israel as part of the hostage deal at the end of November. The three were Louis's wife, who was also Fernando's sister. Her name was Clara Marmon. Her sister, Gabriella Lehmberg, and Gabriel's daughter, 17-year-old Mia. Mia's release from Hamas captivity, again in November, last November, was one of the most memorable moments. The teenager girl was led by a Hamas terrorist to a Red Cross vehicle with her beloved dog Bella in her arms. Mia would not abandon a dog the entire captivity. Preparing for the operation of the hostage rescue, the Israeli Defense Forces Special Units went over detailed plans, weighing responses to every possible scenario that may arise during the mission. The intelligence information regarding the location of two Israeli hostages were in the hands of the Shin Bet, the Israeli Secret Service, for some time. As a matter of fact, probably close to a month. But the possibility of tragic failure was too great. That is, until February 12th, when precise intel information gave the green light for the go-ahead. The analysis was that this was the right time to successfully rescue the two hostages safely, with as little possible casualties to our own forces. Keep in mind, the rescue operation took place in an extremely dense area of the Shavara refugee camp in Rafiach. Given the signal, the fighters of the Shin Bet operational unit and the Yamam, which is the special Israeli police counterterrorism unit, approached the targets covertly. The special ops needed to approach the site on foot in an extremely quiet manner. They simply snuck undetected under the noses of many armed Hamas terrorists. The commander of the Yamam unit, again a special Israeli police counterterrorism unit, whose name is not permitted to be disclosed, was quoted in part of the Operation Debriefing, saying, On our way, we crossed, undetected, three Hamas battalions. He then added, Our fighters knew that at any second, they could make a mistake which would endanger the hostages. A small mistake will jeopardize everything. The terrorists were located in several buildings surrounding the building where the hostages were held. Of course, terrorists were also inside the building itself. At exactly 1.49 a.m. on the 12th of February, 
the Israeli special ops quietly attached a bomb to the locked door of the building. A loud explosion rocked the neighborhood. Footage from the fighters' helmet cameras reveal a hell of a firefight immediately after the explosion. The special forces charge into the building and into the specific apartment holding the hostages. Within three seconds, they kill the terrorists guarding the hostages. And then two seconds later, two of the fighters located the hostages. They calmly told them in Hebrew, we are Israeli special forces. We are here to take you home. In the debriefing, they said the hostages at first were in total shock. The two fighters shielded the hostages with their own bodies, while their buddies conducted a heavy firefight with terrorists inside the building, as well as with the terrorists in several nearby buildings. At precisely 1.50 a.m., that's just one minute after the initial blast of the door to the building, the Israeli Air Force began using massive firepower to prevent local terrorists from attacking the fighters and the hostages. The Air Force created an extensive fire belt around the location and secured a corridor through which the evacuation of the hostages and the special ops were conducted safely. It was then that the two hostages were repelled down from the window of the second floor. This was safer than taking them out via the building itself. As they reached the ground, one of the soldiers noticed that 60-year-old hostage Fernando Merman was barefoot. So he picked him up in his arms and carried him. A little later, another soldier took off his own boots, placed them on Fernando's feet, and continued fighting barefoot. On the ground, providing cover with heavy fire, were Shayette 13, which are the sea commandos, as well as tanks from the 7th Armored Brigade. Now imagine scores of terrorists in a densely populated area all around you, firing anything and everything at you. But the Israeli Air Force, Shaita 13 commandos, and the Israeli tanks created a modern-day parting of the Red Sea, enabling the hostages and the rescuing forces to be extracted safely. Only one Israeli Defense Forces soldier was slightly injured in the entire operation. The hostages were brought to an Air Force helicopter awaiting them. Before taking off, they underwent a quick initial medical examination. Then they flew, escorted by more special ops from the Air Force Unit Number 669 to the Sheba Hospital in Tel Aviv. At 3.15 a.m., the helicopter landed in the hospital. Only then, Fernando and Luis's families were notified. They were told, and I quote, We rescued your loved ones, and they are in good health. The families were united at 5 a.m. Hugs and tears were in abundance. Perhaps the most amazing part of the story is that all five family members who were under Hamas captivity were saved and reunited. For its part, Hamas denied the two hostages were in their hands to begin with. This is because Hamas was compromised, most likely from within their own ranks, and disconcerted, caught off balance. So as usual, Hamas tried to divert attention by emphasizing the dozens killed in the operation, not bothering to mention those killed were Hamas terrorists eliminated by the Israeli forces. Hamas immediately began running a campaign claiming that Israel, I quote, carried out the continuation of the genocide in Rafiach. Mike my words. The dozens killed in the rescue operation were Hamas, not civilians. The second reason Hamas is calling the rescue operation a genocide is in order for the world to continue its pressure on Israel not to take Rafiach. And again, mark my words, sooner or later Rafiach will be taken. Sooner if no hostage deal is reached or later if a hostage deal is indeed agreed on. For the full Rafiach story, listen to episode War with Hamas number 17. Since October 7th, Israel's been attempting to free hostages militarily. Several soldiers risked their lives and were even injured in attempted rescue operations. 
in view of the fact that the hostages are scattered in many places, above and below the ground, under strict guard and surrounded by explosives, the chances of success are very low. In the last four months, the security system had information about the location of hostages in real time, but they were not rescued because the chances of rescuing them alive was extremely low. It will probably be very difficult to successfully repeat the recent rescue. Hamas will learn from the operation, will examine how to take out possible local spies, and tighten guard over the additional 134 hostages. It is likely to assume that the absolute majority will not be rescued in a special operation. Israel will have to find another way to free them. And so now a bit of a change of topic, and that is about world organizations as well as The Hague in Holland attempting to limit Israel's ability to defend itself. For the reasons that are beyond normative understanding, most countries in the world want the war to stop now, even though Hamas has yet to be eliminated. Every country has their political interests, especially facing public opinion, much of the time skewed by pro-Palestinian media. Nothing new, of course. An example of that was on Monday, February 12th, when the International Court in Hague, Holland, ordered to stop all transfers of spare parts to the F-35 fighter jets in use in Israel from warehouses located in Holland. In doing so, the court accepted an appeal filed by so-called human rights organizations in the Netherlands against the Dutch government that agreed to approve the export. The grounds for the appeal is that the supply of the parts could implicate the Netherlands in human rights violations and war crimes. The appeal was filed after a local court in the Netherlands rejected the initial request. The Hague determined, and I quote, there is a clear and immediate risk that significant violations of human rights are being committed in the Gaza Strip by F-35 aircrafts used by the Israeli Air Force. Israel does not take into account the consequences of its bombings on the civilian population. I'm assuming that you, the listener to this episode, are not surprised. It is just amazing how this court and other so-called human rights organizations are willing to accept totally fake claims by Hamas as to their identity like naming the terrorists as civilians, as well as the grossly inflated numbers of casualties. The court ordered Holland to stop the export within seven days. By the way, the decision was made just as Dutch Prime Minister was in an official visit to Israel. Again, don't be surprised and don't expect any justice. Everything is tainted politically. The Dutch government replied and said the following. We took into account Israel's right to defend itself, as well as the good relations with the United States which manufactures and is responsible for the planes, and that, and again I quote, it cannot be determined that the F-35 planes are involved in serious violations of the humanitarian law in matters of war. The Dutch government also stated that the U.S. company Lockheed Martin, the manufacturer of the spare parts, could supply the parts to Israel from other bases located in Europe. The Dutch government stated they will appeal the decision at The Hague. This seems like just one more small issue dealing with Holland specifically, but the F-35 fighter jet parts stored in a military base in the south of Netherlands do not belong in any way to the Netherlands. They belong to the American manufacturer Lockheed Martin and to the United States Department of Defense, which established regional supply centers in several countries around Europe. From those supply centers, the U.S. ships necessary parts, spare parts, to air forces, which are equipped with the American jets. The American government and Israel are on the verge of signing on the purchase of a third squadron of F-35 aircrafts, so that in the worst case, when the Netherlands stops the export of spare parts, these will be supplied to Israel directly from the United States. 
As the war continues, the memory of the horrific massacre by Hamas is being eroded by global public opinion, which is increasingly influenced by the story of the Palestinian suffering that casts Israel once again in the role of Goliath. The Minister of Foreign Affairs of the European Union, Joseph Borrell, called on the international community to reconsider the supply of weapons to Israel. American President Joe Biden has of late declared a couple of times that Israel's reaction in Gaza is excessive. Although different from one another, Joseph Burrell, a real hater of Israel, while Joe Biden, a real lover of Israel. Yet, both men are speaking to their constituents. Both men are attempting to appease the anti-Israel voices. Both men are trying to corner Israel into an agreement, essentially stopping the war. The problem Israel could face is that countries will make a decision that the raw materials used by defense industries will also be in the category of weapons and therefore limit the export to Israel. Aluminum, for example, which is used to make missiles or sensors or other means that are integrated into the means of warfare that the defense industries produce. Israeli companies manufacturing interceptor missile that blow up missiles shot at Israel, as well as radars that detect them ahead of time, based their production on imported raw materials imported from all over the world. Now, Israel manufactures its main weapon systems on its own or buys them from the United States. Fighter planes, attack and transport helicopters, refueling planes and a great many air-to-ground bombs, some of which penetrate bunkers designed to destroy Hamas tunnels and underground command rooms. The German company, Thyssenkorp, supplies Israel with submarines and other ships. Look, most military needs are made in Israel. As a matter of fact, over 70% of Israeli tanks, like the Cherry Tank, best in the world, are made in Israel by about 200 Israeli companies. Also, armored personnel carriers and much more is made in Israel. Having said that, the tanks and armor personnel carrier engines are manufactured in Germany, exported to the United States, and purchased by Israel's Ministry of Defense. Israel does fear that calls like those of the European Union's foreign minister will have a snowball effect. This is not an immediate threat, but Israel must come up, long-term, with viable domestic alternatives. And now to the third topic that I wanted to tell you about. On February 14th, American, Israeli, and general world media shared a scoop. Media sources spoke of a comprehensive plan for a long-term peace between Israel and the Palestinians. This will be almost coerced onto the region, Israelis and Palestinians specifically. Apparently, the Biden administration and a small group of Middle Eastern Arab countries, namely Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, United Arab Emirates, and others, are rushing to complete a detailed peace plan with a firm timeline for the establishment of a Palestinian state. The proposed plan is anything but new. Been there, done that, and failed miserably. And so, let's take a closer look. In 1947, the United Nations presented a plan that would have enabled two countries, a Jewish state alongside an Arab state. And that was, again, in 1947, it was called the Partition Plan. In the area of Israel, the West Bank and Gaza of today would have been split up between, again, two states. The Jewish state would have covered 56.47%, so in other words, almost 57% of the mandated area, not including Jerusalem, by the way, and about 498,000, or about roughly half a million Jews, and in that area would have been 325,000 Arabs. The Arab state would have covered 43.53%, in other words, 43.5% of the territory, about 807,000 Arabs and 10,000 Jews would have lived there. An international trustship government would have been established in Jerusalem 
for the then 100,000 Jewish and 105,000 Arab residents, altogether 205,000. In May of 1948, the Secretary General of the Arab League, Azam Pasha, referred to the plan and said, and I quote, if this goes through, it will be a war of extermination, a massacre of enormous proportions that will be talked about like the Crusaders or the Mongol conquests. Well, Israel was indeed established. The Arab countries did not succeed in the annihilation of the newly born Jewish state. So the Arab states and the Palestinians, then, after they lost the war in 1948, had two choices. Actually, three choices. One was to establish a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza with one-third of Jerusalem, including the Old City, as a Palestinian capital. They held on to it, the West Bank, Gaza, and part of Jerusalem. They could have made a Palestinian state. Didn't happen. The second was to integrate Gaza into Egypt and the West Bank into Jordan, and then providing these Palestinians that live in their respective areas citizenship of those countries. That didn't really happen. Jordan did it somewhat, but then revoked the citizenship. The third choice was to continue planning the destruction of Israel, and that is indeed what they chose. So now fast forward about 19 years. On May 20th, 1967, Syrian Defense Minister Hafez Assad, later on he became the president, declared that the time has come to enter the war of extermination. I just quoted. On May 27th, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser announced, and I quote again, our basic goal is the destruction of Israel. Now, they weren't just talking. They mobilized their armies, moved them to the border with Israel, and prepared for an imminent attack. Israel, for its part, preempted in what is known as the 1967 Six-Day War. We all know how that ended up. The complete defeat of the Egyptians, Jordanians, and the Syrian armies in the acquiring of land by Israel. After its victory in the Six-Day War, Israel hoped the Arab states would enter peace negotiations, realizing we're not going away. Israel signaled to the Arab states its willingness to relinquish virtually all the territories it acquired in exchange for peace. Again, all the ter territories it acquired in the Six-Day War. Israel's then Minister of Defense and the hero of the Six-Day War, Moshe Dayan, said simply, and I quote, Jerusalem was waiting for only a telephone call from the Arab leaders to start negotiations. The Arab response was clear. Less than two months after the war, in August of 1967, the Arab leaders of the Arab League met in Sudan and adopted a strategy based, as they put it, on three no's. No to peace with Israel. No to negotiations with Israel. No to recognition of Israel. Now fast forward a few more years. Realizing, after another gruesome war called the Yom Kippur War, that the destruction of Israel is not possible, Egypt and Jordan signed peace with Israel. For Egypt, it was in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And for Jordan, it wasn't until 1994. Both of them received what they demanded for themselves, for their countries. Egypt got the entirety of the Sinai Desert for peace. The Jordanians, even though they held the West Bank until 1967, did not want any part of it. King Hussein of Jordan was smart enough not to want to have the West Bank under his sovereignty. Israelis generally attempted to solve the conflict with the Palestinians. Not all Israelis were in agreement, but twice by majority vote. Israelis wanted to end the conflict, voting in prime ministers who ran on a platform of compromise for peace. In the year 2000, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak pressured for a summit with Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and President Bill Clinton. Barak thought peace was achievable and hence made an offer that he thought is too good to be turned down. Barak offered an Israeli redeployment from as much as 95% of the West Bank 
and 100% of the Gaza Strip and the creation of a Palestinian state in these areas. Barak offered the uprooting of isolated Jewish settlements in these areas to be transferred to Palestinian control. He offered Palestinian control over parts of Jerusalem and religious sovereignty over the Temple Mount. In return, Barak wanted the final status agreement to include an end of the conflict clause under which the parties would pledge that all issues between them were now resolved and further claims would not be made at a future date. Yasser Arafat refused Israel's offer. He wanted basically all of Jerusalem, including the Western Wall. He also wanted to flood Israel with Palestinian refugees. But even though he had delusionary demands, Arafat did not even offer a counterproposal. The main issue was that Barak demanded an end of the conflict clause. Clearly, the Palestinians did not want to end the conflict. In 2008, and after Arafat died, Prime Minister Ehud Olmert made a similar offer to the new president, Mahmoud Abbas. Olmert's offer included that Israel would cede almost 94% of the West Bank for the establishment of the Palestinian state. Gaza at the time was already in Palestinian hands. Sparsely populated settlements would be evacuated under this offer. Olmert further offered that Jewish neighborhoods in Jerusalem would be under Jewish sovereignty, while Arab neighborhoods would be under Palestinian sovereignty, so it could be the capital of the Palestinian state. Olmert did not offer a right of return of Palestinian refugees into Israel proper. Israel would, however, agree on a humanitarian basis to accept a thousand refugees every year for five years. Olmert insisted on the final clause that would determine this would be the end of the conflict and the end of the Palestinian claims. Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinians, rejected the deal. And guess what? Yes, you're correct. No counteroffer again. In an ideal world, the new Biden plan would make sense. But this is the Middle East. Arab misery and conflict is the norm. Sorry to sound cynical. But let us imagine for a moment that the Palestinians have really seen the light. Let us imagine for a moment that the Palestinians have been born again. Even so, here are the major questions every Israeli will ask. Whether that Israeli is politically astute or not, these are the questions. 1. Would there be an election in a new Palestinian state? After all, the last legislative elections were held on 25th January 2006. That's 18 years ago. The election for the presidency were in 2005. It was supposed to be a four-year term. It turned into a dictatorship of 19 years thus far. If there are Palestinian elections, Hamas would win, big time. Every Palestinian and non-Palestinian poll makes it clear. We are talking over 80% in favor of Hamas in the West Bank. So the conflict would obviously continue to the death. Two, will the Palestinian state be totally demilitarized? And even if they did agree on that, on paper, how would it be enforced? Three, will they agree to no right of return to Israel proper? Four, will they change their anti-Semitic education? Five, is this the end of the conflict? No more Palestinian demands? As they say in English, don't hold your breath. We've been there. We've done that. Hasn't worked thus far. Israeli society is very pessimistic about any kind of future agreement with the Palestinian state at this stage in the short run and perhaps even in the long run. Thank you for listening. Please share this and other episodes. This episode and all other episodes can be listened to on all the podcast media sources, such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and more. It is also possible to listen on InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast needs your support. If willing, please log into InsideIsrael.fm and click on the Support Us button.